listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 309. What's going on, Mark? All I got to say is, hell yeah, we're in Calgary. All feels strong, empowering Alberta energy. So happy to be here. A little bit of rain, which is not that bad. We can deal with it. Except over that part where we got rained on. We had to move everything, but it's okay. <laughs> Never a dull moment. Never a dull moment. Anyway, we wanted to thank our sponsors, Emerson, Western Tech, and AutoSoul. Yeah, thank you guys for making this possible. Uh, if you like the show, easy way to leave us a review, go in the show note, just click on the link. If you want to try to remember it, it's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. And Paige, yes. we're not the only ones that like this podcast, are we? No. We placed somewhere, didn't we? Yeah, so there's actually a list out there. The 70 best oil and gas podcasts, and 11 of our podcasts are in the top 50. Seven of them are in the top 20. Five of them are in the top 10. And of course, this podcast is the number one. So. Yep, and if you want to learn more, there's a link in the show notes. You want to try to remember, it's blog.feedspot.com forward slash oil and gas podcast. Links in the show notes. Uh, news stories, let's get into them. All right. First story is indigenous leadership in Canada's low-carbon LNG featured at a global energy event. See, this is a partnership of showing how the oil and gas industry can work in it with local indigenous people and come to a win-win solution. So this is an LNG plant that's being built. There's actually a conference going on in the Canada's low-carbon LNG conference. And then in March of 2023, the president of Cedar LNG Project became Canada's first indigenous majority owner of LNG facility to be given the green light by both the provincial and federal governments. Now, what's cool about this is Smith is the chair of the First Nations LNG Alliance, which is a collective of First Nations who support and participate in sustainable LNG development. You see this a lot around the world where the oil and gas industry gets into conflict with local indigenous tribes. Right. And the reason that's happened in the past is because of lack of communication. We've talked about this before where if you bring the indigenous tribes in early on, you can provide jobs. In this case, they're actually doing profit sharing. Right. And it's yeah, a win-win yeah. for everybody. So Christine Kennedy, president of Woodfire LNG, and Robert Dial Antonio, president and CEO of Force BC, is also involved in this project. This Woodfire LNG export facility will be on the site of a historic Squamish Nation's fishing village, but they're also going to build a 50-kilometer pipeline supporting the facility. Now... Many other indigenous leaders and communities participated and benefit from this project, LNG specifically, are also expected to attend this conference. Shannon Joseph, Chair of Energy for Secure Future, I've made a note that Canada has a significant opportunity to set the benchmark for both indigenous economic reconciliation and the production and export of low emission LNG. Bottom line, this is a win-win for everybody. Yes, absolutely. This is a win-win for the citizens of Canada. This is a win-win for the indigenous tribes, who, by the way, actually have built a lot of this facility. Yeah. And it's a win-win for the world because as Canada exports its LNG, you're lowering greenhouse emissions. So hats off to everybody involved in this. Absolutely. All right, California's anti-gas price gouging law takes effect. Uh, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> so this is our uh, governor in California actually saying, look, California needs to hold big oil accountable. And what he's talking about is the high gas price that happened right after the pandemic 2021-2022. And what they're saying is that there's a big gap 
in what the refineries are making as far as profit and what the California citizens are paying for at the fuel pump. And quite honestly, this is all just bull. So in the U.S., the big refineries, the Chevrons and the Valeros and Exxons, do not own gas stations. The retail gas station market is extremely competitive, and they make pennies of profit. And no gas station is going to gouge the customers, because if they did, the gas station right down the street would be cheaper and capture all of the profits. And like I said, the refineries just produce the raw gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel, and the market decides how much it costs. Now, the thing they talk about here is in August to October 2022, California residents paid some of the highest gasoline prices in the country, and they wonder... And look at the refineries. No, it's your own <laughs> politics, California. And this is just ridiculous. So not only is this not going to help anything, now California has stood up another government-funded organization which is trying to control pricing of fuels. When you look at the state of California, they're not good at controlling the pricing of anything. Everything is so expensive there. Yeah, exactly. This is a mistake going in the wrong direction basically driven by certain government parties' affiliation to want to be reelected. Oh, we're now having a little wind problem I've here. Been, <laughs> I've been abused by science all night. There's a quote here saying, setting a windfall profit cap on refining gasoline will save consumer billions of dollars. No, your cost to consumer, at least in the state of California, even more money. This is totally misguided legislation. And the prices at the pump are set by the market, pure and simple. And California makes it very hard for the refiners in that state to produce a low cost product. So of course the prices at the pump are higher in California. This is just a mess. California, you did it for yourself. I don't have any sympathy. You know I put stuff in here just to rally you up, right? <laughs> okay, so moving on to the next one. Trans Mountain Expansion reports unprecedented collaboration with indigenous communities. So once again, we're talking about another collaboration with indigenous communities. Now let me tell you what's funny about this page. On our last show, we talked about how Enbridge is actually having to reroute a pipeline because the indigenous tribe is basically extorting them, right? Here's the opposite. Here's Trans Mountain, which is famous for the Keystone Pipeline, is working with the indigenous communities literally hand in hand. So this Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion from Edmonton to a coast near Vancouver is working very closely with indigenous communities. They actually have indigenous members on the actual board. The indigenous tribal members own a percentage of this project. There's over 3,100 indigenous people that have been hired to work on the expansion, which is about 12% of the total workforce. About 25% of the project contracts have been awarded to indigenous businesses and partnerships at almost $5 billion worth of revenue. So these are perfect examples of how Trans Mountain is working very closely with the indigenous tribe as a partner and not having the issues that other companies are have when the local indigenous tribes try to hold them hostage. So this is about 980 kilometers of new pipe, about 12 new pump stations. The construction is expected to be finished around 2024. They're about 80% complete right now. That's and then here's the cool part. Once this construction is finished, the indigenous tribes continue to see revenue and continue to have a voice in this project. So once again, this is how it's done right. Hats off Trans Mountain uh, for working very closely. Wrong, wrong company. What we got next, Paige? All right. Norway approves $18.5 billion investment in oil and gas projects. So this is in the North Sea on the shelf. $18.5 billion in new oil and gas projects tells me, number one, that the country of Norway sees hydrocarbons being on the market for a very, very, very long time. These are 19 offshore oil and gas projects. Like I said, they're operating on the shelf. 
And these projects have already been approved. And it's a mix of new development, additional development of producing oil and gas fields, and investments to increase resource recovery in older producing fields. All of this money being pumped into the North Sea is going to create jobs and value for the people and the citizens that live in that part of the world. And it contribute greatly to Europe's energy security. You know, the, Europe needs to wean itself off Russian gas, and they're doing it as fast as possible. By Norway stepping in and increasing hydrocarbon production in North Sea, it's going to only help uh, wean themselves off Russians' hydrocarbons even quicker. Now, Norway's oil and gas policy is really in stark difference with some of the regulatory changes in the UK, yeah. who start the windfall taxes that you talked about earlier. And some of the UK operators, or some UK government wants no more new license in the North Sea. So I expect somewhere soon, probably 2024, 2025, that the UK and Norway will butt heads over what's happened in North Sea. However, Norway will go to the bank laughing because the UK will be buying <laughs> yeah. their natural gas regardless of what right. the public thinks. Yeah. All right. So Russia asked for the same oil deal Chevron has asked in Venezuela. This is really interesting. So basically, Chevron is the first American operator, one of the first operators that's been allowed to go back in and recover Venezuelan oil. Now, remember, in the U.S., we're one of the few countries that have the refining capacity to refine that heavy, complex crude that comes from a couple of places. It comes from here in Canada, comes from Venezuela, comes from the Middle East. So Chevron went through all the hoops and paperwork and requirements to actually start bringing that Venezuelan crude back to the U.S. They've made over, I think, 20 super tanker loads so far. And that's really good for Venezuela, whose economy has tanked. The money that Chevron's bringing back to their economy is helping to buy food for their people, medical supplies. Now, Russia's Rosneft has asked Venezuela for basically the same deal, which would allow them to take that crude oil in Venezuela and then market it themselves. Now, the difference is Chevron's doing it based upon a lot of money that the government of Venezuela owes Chevron. So Chevron, even though they're spending money to move this crude and they're making a profit at it, and they're spending money to pay Venezuela, they're not paying current market rates because Venezuela owes Chevron a lot of money. Russia doesn't have that same market differentiator, and Russia's have to pay fair market price. And it's really interesting that Petrovesa is looking at this deal. Now, the first round of crude exports by Petrovesa with Russia is about $3.2 billion worth of crude. And that tells me that government Petrovesa is still desperate for cash, which I actually is no is true. Now, if this is successful and it works, this is going to give Russia access to another crude oil revenue stream at a time where our Western sanctions are constricting their ability to export their own crude. So in a kind of strange way, if they pull this deal off, Russia is not going to be able to sell its own oil and gas because of Western sanctions. They're going to be able to sell Venezuela's oil and gas. Ah. So if you think about it from a market point of view, this is genius. Right. It's still too early to tell that the government of Venezuela is going to approve this. Yeah, the last time that Russia asked for this, Venezuela said no. And I suspect with how close the relationships are starting to get with the U.S. government and the Venezuelan government, and with the sanctions going on both with the U.S. and Europe against Russia, I got a feeling Venezuela is going to say no to this deal as well. We'll keep an eye on this. All righty. All right. LNG exporting Gulf Coast states drove U.S. natural gas demand growth. Yeah, this is really interesting. In the U.S., we have an abundant amount of hydrocarbons, especially natural gas. The LNG, which is basically taking that natural gas, mushing it down to a liquid so you can move it in a tanker and then shipping it, that market is probably owned by the Gulf Coast states because why? They have ocean and you can bring a super tanker in to move everything. So the demand for U.S. natural gas has gone up 
amazing, almost 50% since 2022, which is a great amount of export. In the states of uh, Louisiana, Texas, the demand grew for our LNG over 116%. Let me say that number again, over 116%. That is a crazy amount of growth. And that growth is fueled by a couple of things. That growth is fueled by us feeding LNG to Europe to replace that Russian gas. So we're taking market share away from Russia, which is something I've been talking about for a decade that needed to happen. The other thing, though, is the world is increasing its natural gas-fired electrical power generation. Mm -hmm. And so the world is buying our LNG. Now, this increase in natural gas consumption for the electrical power sector has increased almost every year and will continue to increase every year. Once again, showing that there's going to be a need for hydrocarbons, especially LNG, forever. And so what's happening is the Gulf Coast states are exporting more and more, and we're producing more and more. This is jobs for people in the U.S. This is a better impact to the environment for the electrical generation that switches from coal to natural gas. And it's tax revenue for the Gulf Coast states. So let's make sure we can keep our government from messing around with this. This is good for everybody. Good. Good deal. Tanzania to sign $42 billion deal for onshore LNG plant in July. You know, OGGN years ago actually had a mixer put on by Hussein. Hussein, if you're listening, thank you, that we sanctioned in Tanzania. Uh, oh. Hussein was, I believe, a high school student when I first started working with him. Now he has a whole business that he's built. I've never met him in person. Still in contact with him. And Paige, his first mixer he did... He bought school books for the local village. Yeah. The local village had one school from five-year-old to 18-year-olds. It was a dirt floor. And he sent me a picture of these kids crying because he bought their school books. How great is that? Let me tell you what else is going on in Tanzania. If you don't know where Tanzania is, it's on the east coast of Africa. They've made abundant hydrocarbon discoveries. There's been this long drag-out negotiation between some of the majors in Tanzania for this $42 billion uh, LNG plant. And the part of the reasons that the negotiations have dragged on for so long, quite honestly, is corruption. The super majors and the investors wanted to guarantee that the corruption would not be out of control and would be contained. And Tanzania could not prove that was happening. So what they did is they actually came up with a government-sponsored agreement and an amended production sharing deal with the majors that are involved, which is Equinor and Shell and ExxonMobil, and they're guaranteeing by law, by and they actually created what's called a project law, that the funds that the super majors put into this LNG plant will go to building the plant and not to some crooked politician's project. So the majors that are involved in this project signed off on this, and so now the construction is going to start. So they had to create a special law to get the capital to uh, get this plant up and running. This thing should be up in about five years. It'll be the second country in Africa on the East Coast to export natural gas right behind neighboring Mozambique. And about 10% of the gas that's going to be produced here will actually be used locally to help fuel electrical generation for schools, hospitals, and homes and businesses. And so the government's really happy and eager to accelerate this development of their natural resources. Now that they have investor money, things are moving forward. Now, the other thing to be real aware of here is China's National Oil Company has also done a joint venture with Tanzania and partnered with the Tanzania Petroleum Development Company. So if you look at it in some ways, it's the U.S. and Europe versus the Chinese and investment dollars in Tanzania. Right now, we're winning. Once again, let's keep an eye on this. Okay. Canada will soon end inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. What does that mean, Mark? I don't even want to start here. All right. <laughs> so there's pending legislation in Canada to get rid of fossil fuel subsidies. 
We need to understand what a subsidy is. A subsidy is different than a tax break. So right now, a lot of the citizens in Canada think that the federal government gets the oil and gas industry billions of dollars of subsidies. A subsidy is when you write somebody a check, right? You see that a lot going on in the renewables right now, where I give you money to stand up your program. A tax break is when you spend your own money to develop something and the government allows you to write part of that off on your own taxes. So when you look at this headline that Canada will soon end inefficient fossil fuel subsidies, there's only one subsidy in Canada. The only place the government's actually happened to give money to the oil and gas industry is there's areas in the north of Canada that getting fuel is very expensive because it's so cold, and the government throws some money in to transport that fuel to the north parts of Canada. Everything else is simple tax breaks. It's tax breaks on research and development. It's tax breaks on non-productive wells. It's tax breaks on investments in machinery. It's the same tax breaks that automotive companies get in Canada, same tax breaks that the tech companies get in Canada, yet for the oil and gas industry, they call them subsidies. Like I said, in Canada, there's only one true subsidy, and that's where the government's helping to pick up the cost to move fuels up in the very north part because of how cold it is. So this is a, literally a ridiculous article. And if you go read through this, they're talking about things like $500 million in loans that goes to Castle Pipeline. That was private enterprise. That was investment money. The entire industry runs on investment money. That's not a subsidy when you're a <laughs> private investor, when a bank loans money. And of course, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers has maintained that the oil and gas industry is not subsidized at all. Technically, there is one subsidy. I'm actually okay with the subsidy because it's helping the people that live in North Canada stay alive yeah. and stay warm. Right. So unfortunately, last month, over 100 environmental groups wrote an open letter to Prime Minister Trudeau asking for him to end these subsidies. What's happening is there's a court battle starting to over the definition of subsidy, which is ridiculous. You're going to spend taxpayer money going to court to define the term subsidy, and the Trudeau administration wants to define subsidy as anytime somebody makes profit. That's very misleading. Yeah, very misleading. So this is inefficient, a waste of government money. It's greenwashing, or it's oil field dogging at its worst, opposite of greenwashing. It's just literally ridiculous. Unfortunately, people have to deal with this. You know, let's hope that there's some common sense that prevails. Okay, electric shock. Permian producers face looming shortfall in grid power. This is actually really cool. So, so much of the work that's being done in the Permian has moved over to electrical power instead of diesel gensets. So the frac pumps, uh, the uh, casing, uh -huh. the wire line, instead of all that being run by diesel motors, it's being run by electricity, which helps emissions. Right? right, yeah. And it also does other things. It reduces noise. So if you're working in a community, it's not as much noise as diesel engine runnings. Mm -hmm. It's less emissions. It's also less vibration on the equipment, so the equipment lasts longer. Ah. What's happening is as we move our fleet to electricity, we need basically utility power. And if you don't know this, in the Permian, it's in the middle of nowhere, and there's yeah. not a lot of utility power. So this article in the Journal of Petroleum Technology is talking about how the uh, Permian producers face looming shortfall in grid power because we have to build the infrastructure to keep up. One of the things that's really interesting in this is that they're talking about meeting emission targets, and electrification is a great way to do that, and that we're over 7 million barrels per day by 2036 will produce by electrical-powered equipment. And they're expecting shortages on the grid in the Permian as there's a bigger, bigger demand for electricity. Now, the electrical producers in that energy are working really hard on that. And what's needed is an increase of electrical generation capacity. 
So we need to go from about 4.2 gigawatts, which is what we can produce now in the Permian, to about 19 gigawatts. That's a pretty big increase. However, if there's any state in this country that can ramp electrical production, it's us. So I'm not worried about this at all. ERCOT will supervise this. Our electrical generation providers will actually build the infrastructure and electrical generation capacity. And by the way, people, a part of this electrical, this new electrical generation capacity will be solar and wind. So this is very pro-renewable, but it'll also be natural gas fired. I have no doubt that we will build the infrastructure and electrical generation very quickly to meet these needs. And it's good for everybody. The other thing they don't talk about in this article is as we increase our available electrical gigawatts, that's going to help prevent things like brownouts and our higher peak demands like the summer. Yeah. I'm actually, I gave ERCOT hell during the freeze. I'm going to give ERCOT props right now. We have not had brownouts and outages in Texas, and we are at record-breaking electrical consumption levels. So, eh, I'm not going to do that. It's too early in the summer. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. It's going to get hotter. I believe that. All right. Asia must reach net zero before the world can do so, says Petronas. CEO. Yeah, if you paid any attention to this, this is basically true. If you think about the Asia Pacific area of the world, they produce more CO2 than anybody. So in some ways, it doesn't matter how much CO2 we cut curtail here in Europe if we can't get Asia Pacific to cut that as well. So this is it's actually a pretty good article about the CEO of uh, Malaysia Staino oil gas company Petronas talking about how he expects at least Malaysia to be able to start cutting back on emissions. And he's going to actually take the process and the technology that Petronas is using and he's going to share it with other friendly Asia Pacific companies to help all of Asia Pacific, which I think is a really cool thing to do. Now, the world government agreed in 2015, the primate Paris Accord, to limit global heating to below 2 degrees Celsius. I could spend two days talking about how that is not enforceable, it's not realistic, and it doesn't really matter. However, it is a goal. And if you want to look at a goal and try to meet it, it's really cool that companies like Petronas have taken this and started moving their emissions to that level. Even if you don't believe CO2 or man's activity has, has made an effect on the world's climate, reducing the other emissions, carbon monoxide, nitrous oxide, methane, is good for everybody. So it's nice to see that instead of ignoring this problem, which is what a lot of the countries in Asia Pacific has done for a very long time, they're going to tackle it head on. Now, remember we talked about last show how what was the country that didn't want the LNG? Yeah. So here's their neighbor, basically, oh, it was the Philippines. That didn't yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's their neighbor, Malaysia, saying, you know what? We know natural gas is a transition fuel, so we're going to make it easier for us to import LNG to fuel our electrical generation. Yeah, so you have two countries that are right next to each other with two totally different approaches. Maybe it's because they're not Catholic. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if they're Catholic or not. we got to be careful Didn't we have that. some Catholics going, the church does not stand behind this? Wasn't that the Philippines? Yo, oh, no, that was 100%, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, oil spills. <laughs> All right. Wood and Centrica Storage explore the feasibility of a hydrogen production hub. Yeah, so this is sort of the same stuff you've seen ExxonMobil do in the Gulf Coast of the U.S., yeah. where they take old reservoirs and they're going to use them for carbon sequestering and then lose that carbon dioxide for other stuff, actually make a revenue stream out of it. So this is Wood working with the Easton Gas Processing Terminal in England. They partner with Equinor, and they have an old reservoir in East Yorkshire that they're going to redevelop that field. But instead of using it for carbon storage, they're going to use it for hydrogen storage. I'm very bullish on hydrogen, but before it can be commercially viable, we have to build the infrastructure to 
make it cost effective, to manufacture it cost effectively, to move it, to store it, and then to have vehicles run off of it. This is the very beginning of building an infrastructure where you use an old reservoir to actually store the hydrogen for future use. Now, this is a 10-year project, and part of this project is Centrica's belief that they can achieve net zero by using hydrogen for fuel in the future. And of course, Wood, which used to be a large EPC, which now does a lot more consulting and a lot more domain expertise type work, is using their extensive experience in the hydrogen sector to help evaluate this project and see if it actually makes sense and then move ahead into production and uh, associated other facilities that you're going to need. Dan Carter, president of decarbonization at Wood, has a good quote. He says, this study is closely aligned with Wood's strategy to focus on enabling our clients to decarbonize their operations and reach net zero through sustainable design. I love that. Um, now, the other thing that's going on here that you don't hear a lot of people talking about is they're doing this as a project, as a joint venture, and they're talking about the environmental goals, but they're also doing this to make a profit. And what they're gonna learn by building out this project is gonna allow them to replicate these same type of hydrogen storage projects in depleted reservoirs all over the world, except each time they do it, they're gonna do it better and cheaper. So I really wanna keep an eye on this. All right, last one. Divesting from fossil fuels would have saved U.S. pension funds $21 billion. So this is a study that was done by the University of Waterloo in partnership with the environmental organization Stand.Earth, which a big shout out to Stand.Earth. You're one of the companies that refused to come on the balance point. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to call you out on that. Now, this study says that California's investment funds in their pension was their portfolios were $402.8 billion, billion with having ownership of stocks in oil and gas companies. And this study says if they would have diversified or got rid of the ownership of those stocks, that, that fund instead of 402.8 billion would have been 424.6 billion. I did a little bit of research in this page. You know what they did? What? They cooked the books. So uh... when they did this study, they took the performance of oil and gas stocks when they were from high to low and then they stopped tracking them. And that's how they came out with the conclusion that if they would have diversified that the pension fund in California would have been worth more. Of However, course. if you look at the reality, stand.earth, and watch the <laughs> increase in the value of the oil and gas stocks, which have been tremendous in the last four years, my math says that 402.8 billion would have been worth 590.1 billion. So my math says that they should have bought more fossil fuel stocks if they wanted more a better return on their pension fund. And by the way, stand.earth.com, if you'd like to talk about this and go through the numbers, I'm happy to do that. This is one of those articles that drive me crazy. They cooked the books. They did this backwards to prove a political point. And that point was that big, big investments like portfolio funds, retirement funds needed to diversify from oil and gas stocks. And actually, the opposite is true. You're seeing the same thing going on in New York. And I tell you what, if you look at states with large fossil fuel industries like Texas, West Virginia, Louisiana, Montana, Oklahoma, their investment funds in oil and gas are killing it. Their pension funds are growing like crazy. They even all have rainy day funds because they're making so much money from the oil and gas investments. So unfortunately, I just call bullshit on this. All right. Well, that wraps everything up. I guess I'm going to do the rig count. And it looks like the United States is down five at 682. Canada is up 10 at 169. Internationally, we're up 18 at 965. Like those numbers. Speaking of liking numbers, 
crowd that is so loud we can't hear ourselves. Yep. If you'd like to advertise with us, it's very easy. <laughs> Go to OGGN.com, hit the pricing page. We have all kinds of different options. I've actually, Paige, had four meetings. We've been here for two days. I've had four meetings with companies that want to work with OGGN. That's always um, good. It's, yeah, it's really good. Met some really good people. Then if you want to follow what we're doing, stay afloat of what's going on. Understand next time we'll be in Calgary, whatever. Follow our LinkedIn page. We're growing that page like crazy. Also, by the way, by the time you've heard this, we've launched a new podcast, which is the Energy Pipeline podcast sponsored by Caterpillar. Give that one a listen. We actually have several more in the works. I got a comment page from a listener right before we left to come to Calgary, and they asked us when we we're going to stop growing number of podcasts, and I said... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, no word in the future. <laughs> and then if you'd like ourself to come to your event like we're doing here, bring our experts, come to your sales kickoff, your conference, whatever, reach out to us. I'm happy to share the details. I'm ready to close this one down. Yep. Ready to get out of here? Yep. Wait. What? We're going to get out of here, but we're going to come back with the live microphone and see if we get some questions to do behind the curtain. Yeah, but that's going to be behind the curtain. Right. So remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.